This is the Biblical Unitarian Podcast. Greetings, friends, and welcome to the Biblical Unitarian Podcast, the podcast that aims to start conversations about the oneness and unity of God and about the humanity of Jesus. My name is Dustin Smith, and as always, I will be your host. We've got episode 250, episode 250, entitled The Messiah in Psalm 69. That's nearly five years of weekly episodes on biblical Unitarian topics. And I appreciate you so much for continuing to support and listen to this show each and every week. I thank you very, very much. This week's episode, we will look at how the New Testament authors drew upon Psalm 69 in order to better understand the definition of the Messiah, which we would call the study of Christology, and how these New Testament authors would recognize the qualities and the role and the characteristics of this Messianic figure, and of course, how this Messiah relates to the God of Israel. We've been looking at a variety of passages within the Old Testament in order to see how these passages would shape the expectation of Israel's Messiah. And as of late, we've been looking through the Psalms, which seem to have quite a lot of information that has deeply influenced and impacted the authors of the New Testament. So here's some of the questions I would like to explore in this week's episode. First, who is the subject of Psalm 69 and what is his relationship to the God of Israel? Second, what sort of things are said about the psalmist in Psalm 69 that deeply impacted the writers of the New Testament? Third, how widespread can the influence of Psalm 69 be detected upon the New Testament authors? I think you'll be surprised at the answer to this question. And lastly, what does it say about the New Testament understanding of Jesus Christ that he is viewed in light of this suffering righteous man depicted in Psalm 69? Let's find out on this week's episode of the Biblical Unitarian Podcast. The first point today is a close look at Psalm 69. Now, this is a lengthier psalm, so we won't be able to get into all of the details on each particular verse, but I want to highlight what I think are the most influential points because most of our attention is going to be given towards the ways that the various New Testament authors drew upon Psalm 69 in their understanding of Jesus and Jesus' church. So let's begin. Psalm 69, verse 1, a psalm of David, save me, O God, for the waters have threatened my life. So right from the beginning, we can see that the psalmist is someone who looks to God as someone that can rescue him, that can deliver him, that can save him. There is the metaphor here of waters that are attacking and threatening the very life and security of the psalmist. I think it's unlikely that these waters are literal waters. These are a literary metaphor to describe the enemies of the psalmist. Let's move on. Verse 2. I have sunk deep into the mire and there is no foothold. 
I've come into deep waters. A flood overflows me. I am weary with my crying. My throat is parched. My eyes fail while I wait for my God. Again, we can see here that the psalmist regards the God of Israel as my God. No one would think that the psalmist here is the God of Israel himself. The God of Israel does not cry out and ask someone else for help. Verse 4. Those who hate me without a cause are more than the hairs of my head. Those who would destroy me are powerful, being wrongfully my enemies. What I did not steal, I then have to restore. So now we can see here that the imagery of the waters, of the deep waters, of the flood, of the deep mire, is actually a representation of the enemies of this particular psalmist. He cries out in verse 5, O God, it is you who knows my folly, and my wrongs are not hidden from you. May those who wait for you not be ashamed through me, O Lord God of hosts. May those who seek you not be dishonored through me, O God of Israel. Because for your sake I have borne reproach, dishonor has covered my face. I have become estranged from my brothers and an alien to my mother's sons. For zeal for your house has consumed me, and the reproaches of those who reproach you have fallen on me. So we can see a little bit more about the psalmist here. He does see himself as, in some sense, representing God. He says that, for your sake I have borne reproach. He obviously has zeal for God's house, which is zeal for God's temple. And the reproaches of those who reproach God have actually fallen on this particular person. So he sees himself almost as an atoning figure that is representing the God of Israel. So he's a little bit more than just a suffering righteous person. He's a suffering righteous person who has a unique relationship with Israel's God. Let's continue. Verse 10. When I wept in my soul with fasting, it became my reproach. When I made sackcloth my clothing, I became a byword to them. So we can see that this suffering righteous man is someone who is demonstrating contrition. He is demonstrating his humility. He is explaining the fact that he is a righteous person, and yet he is not viewed as a righteous person by those who surround him, those who are his enemies, even those within his own household, his brothers and his mother's sons. Verse 12. Those who sit in the gate talk about me, and I am the song of the drunkards. But as for me, my prayer is to you, O Yahweh, at an acceptable time. O God, in the greatness of your loving kindness, answer me with your saving truth. So the psalmist obviously prays to God and acknowledges God as Yahweh, and that God, of course, is the God of the psalmist. Again, there's no reason to think that the psalmist would be understood as Yahweh himself. He is clearly distinct from Yahweh. Verse 14, deliver me from the mire and do not let me sink. May I be delivered from my foes and from the deep waters. May the flood of waters not overflow me, nor the deep swallow me up, nor the pit shut its mouth on me. 
Answer me, O Yahweh, for your loving kindness is good. According to the greatness of your compassion, turn to me. And do not hide your face from your servant, for I am in distress. Answer me quickly. O draw near to my soul and redeem it. Ransom me because of my enemies. And so we can continue to see that the psalmist is requesting and petitioning God to deliver, to rescue him, because his life is in jeopardy. And he only believes that Yahweh is the one who can save and deliver him. Verse 19. You know my reproach and my shame and my dishonor. All my adversaries are before you. Reproach has broken my heart, and I'm so sick. And I looked for sympathy, but there was none. And for comforters, and I found none. They also gave me gall for my food, and for my thirst they gave me vinegar to drink. May their table before them become a snare. And when they are in peace, may it become a trap. May their eyes grow dim so that they cannot see and make their loins shake continually. Pour out your indignation on them, and may your burning anger overtake them. May their camp be desolate, may none dwell in their tents. For they have persecuted him whom you yourself have smitten, and they tell of the pain of those whom you have wounded. Add iniquity to their iniquity, and may they not come into your righteousness. May they be blotted out of the book of life, and may they not be recorded with the righteous. And so the psalmist here is asking for God to enact judgment upon these people who are unfairly treating him. He is regarding Yahweh as the judge and saying, God, these people are guilty and they deserve justice and judgment. And thereby he's asking God to function as the judge and to rightfully pour out his wrath upon them. Verse 29. But I am afflicted in my pain. May your salvation, O God, set me securely on high. I will praise the name of God with song and magnify him with thanksgiving. And it will please Yahweh better than an ox or a young bull with horns and hooves. The humble have seen it and are glad. You who see God, let your heart revive for Yahweh hears the needy and does not despise his who are prisoners. Let heaven and earth praise him, the seas and everything that moves in them. For God will save Zion and build cities of Judah, that they may dwell there and possess it. The descendants of his servants will inherit it, and those who love his name will dwell in it. And that's how the psalm closes, with a request for other people to praise this God, because he is going to inhabit Zion and the cities of Judah, where the people are going to possess it, and inherit it as the righteous people within God's kingdom. So it's not difficult to see how New Testament authors would look upon this psalm and to see that the relationship of this suffering righteous person who is surrounded by unbelievers, surrounded by his enemies, who is persecuted by his enemies in a way that calls upon the righteous person to look to Yahweh as the only one who can rescue and deliver and to save him. It is not difficult for the New Testament authors to look at this psalm and to see in it the same sort of thing that was happening with Jesus in his earthly ministry as he was being rejected and persecuted and ultimately how 
the God of Israel rescued and redeemed Jesus by raising Jesus from the dead. That much is clear. And it's going to become much more clear as we see how many times the New Testament authors have actually drawn upon this particular psalm. Let's move to our second point. Point number two is the use of Psalm 69 in the Gospels. Now, I'm just going to give a sampling of the data within the four New Testament Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, where they draw upon Psalm 69. I can't do all of them because this episode would be two hours long. But here is a good sampling of the ways that these New Testament authors were impacted by Psalm 69 and how that shapes our perception of New Testament Christology. So let's begin with the Gospel of John. In John chapter 2, Jesus is in the temple, and it says in John 2.15 that he made a scourge of cords and drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and the oxen, and he poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. And to those who were selling the doves, he said, Take these things away. Stop making my father's house a place of business. His disciples remembered that it was written, Zeal for your house will consume me. That's John 2, verses 15 through 17. Now, this passage goes on to where Jesus is confronted, and they ask him what sort of authority he has. And he says, Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. And this, of course, is interpreted to mean that Jesus himself is going to die, and that he's going to be raised from the dead. Jesus there functioning as the new house of God, the new temple of God. But what's interesting here is the language in verse 17, which draws upon Psalm 69, verse 9. In the Gospel of John, it says, Zeal for your house will consume me, in the future tense. However, in Psalm 69, verse 9, it says, Zeal for your house has consumed me. And that is a consistent translation in the past tense, in the Masoretic text, where we have a call perfect, and of course in the Septuagint translation, which is also in the past tense, in the aorist tense. So while the Old Testament and the Septuagint regard the zeal for the house as something that has already consumed the psalmist, the New Testament authors see this in regard to Jesus as zeal for God's house, will ultimately consume Jesus in the future, namely it's going to consume his life. And so they drew from this passage in Psalm 69 where the consuming of life is something spoken of in the past tense and also something that kind of describes someone's zeal that has taken over the very person and they have shifted it into the future tense of the verb and regarded it as the consumption of Jesus' own life. His actions in the Jerusalem temple will ultimately cost Jesus his very soul. So that's an interesting way in which the Gospel of John has used Psalm 69 and actually changed the tense from the past to the future. That's a very deliberate change. Let's look at another passage. In Matthew 27, verse 34, and all the parallels in the other Gospels at the crucifixion of Jesus, we could see a similar story. 
In Matthew 27, 34, it says, They gave him wine to drink mixed with gall, and after tasting it, he was unwilling to drink. And this, of course, is drawing from Psalm 69, verse 21, where they gave me gall for my food, and for my thirst they gave me vinegar to drink. Now, in Psalm 69, this is more of a mocking that is actually done to the psalmist, but in Matthew 27, this is the sort of thing that was given to Jesus while he was on the cross, and it seems that this is something, uh, at least in John's gospel, that the disciples of Jesus, the women that were there, and the beloved disciple, they're actually giving him this wine and the gall as a way to kind of ease the pain and to numb the pain that he was suffering. But it's clear that all four Gospels draw upon Psalm 69, verse 21, and use it in regard to the way that Jesus was treated while he was suffering on the cross. Certainly Jesus is depicted as the suffering righteous person. We do have another parallel in Matthew and Luke in which this sort of saying appears. Jesus is speaking, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those sent to her. How often I wanted to gather your children together just as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, but you would not have it. Behold, your house is left to you desolate. Now that's from Luke 13, verses 34 through 35, and there's another parallel in Matthew 23. And it's this reference in verse 35 of Luke 13, where, Behold, your house is left to you desolate, that seems to be influenced by Psalm 69, 25, where the psalmist says, May their camp be desolate, may none dwell in their tents. Now what's important in regard to this particular citation that we need to keep in mind is that in Psalm 69, their camp is, of course, plural. And when Luke uses it in Luke 13.35, it says, your house is left to you desolate, and that word for your is second person plural. So we have a plural reference in Psalm 69 and a plural reference in Luke 13. I want you to remember that because we're going to revisit it a little bit later when we get to the book of Acts, which happens to be our next point. Point number three, the use of Psalm 69 in the book of Acts. Now you'll recall that Luke, the evangelist, wrote both the Gospel of Luke and the book of Acts. And the book of Acts is the sequel to the Gospel of Luke. They're meant to be read as a two-part story. But I want you to notice how Luke draws upon Psalm 69, 25 again, this time in reference to Judas. So in Acts chapter 1, starting in verse 16, we have the disciples saying, Brethren, the scripture had to be fulfilled which the Holy Spirit foretold by the mouth of David concerning Judas, who became a guide to those who arrested Jesus. And the passage goes on in verse 20. It says, For it was written in the book of Psalms, Let his homestead be made desolate, and let no one dwell in it. That's Acts 1, verses 16 and 20. Now what's happening here is that 
Luke is drawing upon Psalm 69:25, which says that their camp will be desolate and may none dwell in their tents. And Luke is using it in a different way in the way that Luke used it in the Gospel of Luke, chapter 13, verse 35. You'll recall from that passage, it was in reference to those in Jerusalem who kill the prophets and who stone those whom God has sent to Jerusalem. And there's a plural reference. May their camp be desolate. May your house, second person plural, be left desolate. But here, Luke actually changes the text and moves it from a plural reference to a singular reference. As you can see in Acts 120, let his homestead be made desolate. Let no one dwell in it. So Luke is able to draw on Psalm 69 in two different ways. Once in reference to those who were persecuting Jesus and the prophets in the Gospel of Luke, and again in the book of Acts in regard to Judas as the single individual who was a guide to those who arrested Jesus. So we can see the use of Psalm 69 in some very interesting ways, even by the same author. And Luke, of course, felt that he had the authority to use Psalm 69 in this sort of manner. We might feel that this is a little fast and loose, but Luke felt that he was authorized to interpret Scripture in this way. And that's the way that we have it. Let's move to our fourth point, the use of Psalm 69 in the letters of Paul. Paul draws on Psalm 69 in Romans and in 2 Corinthians. In Romans chapter 11, where he's trying to discern if the Jews who have not yet believed in the gospel of Jesus are cast off or are they just temporarily hardened. He says in Romans 11 verse 7, What then? What Israel is seeking it has not obtained, but those who were chosen obtained it, and the rest were hardened, just as it is written, as David says, Let their table become a snare and a trap, and a stumbling block, and a retribution to them. Let their eyes be darkened and see not, and bend their backs forever. That's Romans 11, verses 7 through 10. And Paul here is drawing from the Greek translation of Psalm 69, verses 22 through 23, which say, May their table for them become a snare, when they are in peace, may become a trap, may their eyes grow dim so they cannot see, and make their loins shake continually. So he is drawing on the psalm that looks at those who are among the people of Israel who are not listening to Yahweh and those who are opposed to Yahweh's righteous person. And there is this prayer that judgment would come upon them. Their table is going to become a snare and a trap. They're going to have this stumbling block and that their eyes are going to be darkened and they're going to bend their backs forever. And this, of course, is a response to the fact that they are not treating God's righteous person correctly. And from the perspective of Paul, these are the Jews who have not accepted the Jewish Messiah, who is the Jewish suffering righteous one. And because of their behavior, it is actually said that they are going to be ensnared, 
they're going to stumble, their eyes are going to be darkened, and they are going to have their backs bent over. Again, this is a response to their own unbelief and rejection of the Messiah, but Paul sees that Messiah as the righteous suffering one, the psalmist in Psalm 69. So Paul views Jesus in that manner, and he quotes this psalm to refer to those who are persecuting that righteous person. And from the perspective of Paul, those are the Jews who have not yet believed in the gospel. We get a different take in 2 Corinthians chapter 6. Let's start in verse 1. And working together with him, we also urge you not to receive the grace of God in vain. For, he says, at the acceptable time, I listened to you, and on the day of salvation I helped you. Behold, now is the acceptable time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. That's 2 Corinthians 6, verses 1-2. through 2. And Paul here is drawing from Psalm 69, verse 13, where he says, As for me, my prayer is to you, O Yahweh, at an acceptable time, O God, in the greatness of your loving kindness. Answer me with your saving truth. So Psalm 69 has the psalmist praying to God, saying, This is the appropriate time right now. I am praying to you. Answer me with your salvation, with your righteous saving truth. And Paul draws upon this and he says, look, the kingdom has broken in, the day of salvation has broken in, and now we can see this as something that we can look to. Now is the acceptable time, and we should receive the grace of God in vain. God has answered the call of the righteous suffering one. It is the acceptable time. And Paul calls upon the people of this righteous suffering one, the people who are in Christ, his Christian community there in Corinth, to not receive the grace of God in vain and to respond appropriately. So Paul, again, is seeing Jesus as that suffering person in Psalm 69, and by extension, the people of the Messiah are those who can respond to the prayer that was offered there in Psalm 69, and Paul sees fulfillment of that prayer already in his own lifetime. And lastly, point number five, the use of Psalm 69 in the book of Revelation. Yes, we do have an allusion to Psalm 69, the book of Revelation. In Revelation chapter 3, this is in the midst of the letters to the seven churches, to the church of Sardis, Jesus says, He who is conquering will thus be clothed in white garments, and I will not erase his name from the book of life, and I will confess his name before my Father and before his angels. That's Revelation 3 and verse 5. So Jesus is kind of saying one thing in the sense of the negative. He's saying, towards the righteous that I won't erase your name from the book of life, but on the other hand, I'm going to confess that particular name before my father and his angelic messengers. And this is drawing from Psalm 69, verses 27 through 28. Add iniquity to their iniquity, and may they not come into your righteousness. May they be blotted out of the book of life, and may they not be recorded with the righteous. And so you can see there in Psalm 69, 28, this sort of 
two sides of the coin. May they be blotted out of the book of life and not recorded with the righteous. So the unrighteous do not make it into the book of life, but the righteous are indeed recorded. And so Jesus is saying here that to his followers, that if they overcome and they conquer, then they will not be erased from the book of life. And Jesus, of course, is able to confess that name before his father and before his angels. Jesus still regards God as his father, as his God. Earlier in the letter to Sardis, he describes God as my God. So the my father reference in Revelation 3.5 is a reference to my God from earlier in Revelation 3 verse 2. Jesus still sees that relationship as intact. And it is interesting here that uh, Jesus is the one who now has the authority to erase someone's name from the book of life, but he still has to confess that name before the Father and to declare these persons to be righteous. Now, the Greek verb to erase, the verb exalifo, appears in the Septuagint of Psalm 69 and, of course, here in Revelation 3, verse 5. In fact, each of the words in this ongoing phrase, erase his name from the book of life, is identical in the Septuagint of Psalm 69 and in Revelation 3, verse 5. So there you have it. That is the widespread influence of Psalm 69 into the New Testament. And we can see how the New Testament authors regard Jesus as this suffering righteous person who needed salvation and deliverance from Israel's God, from Yahweh. Thereby, Jesus would not be understood as Yahweh. He is someone distinct from Yahweh. He is someone who suffered, who was persecuted by those who surrounded him. And the New Testament authors picked up on this and had no problem making this connection. They did not see Jesus as the God of Israel, but as someone who needed God's deliverance, salvation, and rescue. So thank you so much for listening to this week's episode. Join us next week as we continue to look at the Psalms that impacted the New Testament understanding of the Messiah. We'll look at Psalm 72 next week. It's a very interesting psalm, so please look forward to our next episode. If you enjoy our podcast, please consider supporting us as we aim to promote the sound truths of the oneness and unity of God and the humanity of Jesus. You can support us for absolutely free by giving us an honest review on iTunes, by sharing your favorite episodes with your friends, and by subscribing for free on YouTube and iTunes. If you'd like to offer a financial donation to the podcast, please check out this episode's description for a PayPal link. The Biblical Unitarian Podcast is produced and edited by Dustin Williams. I am Dustin Smith, your host. Until next time, please take care.